Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin. I am an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is Ronald Stofferly, the author of In Gold We Trust and the managing partner at Incrementum AG. Now, Ronnie is uh, typically on my show to talk about the precious metal sector, and we do that today. He just got back from two big conferences in Colorado, one being the Denver Gold Symposium, the other being uh, Beaver Creek Precious Metals Conference. And I really wanted to pick his brain because he just got back from a trip where he sat down with probably 80 different CEOs in the precious metal sector, uh, networked with hundreds of investors, and I wanted to gauge sentiment. I wasn't able to make it to the shows this year, so I wanted to hear it from him where he thought sentiment lay. And uh, Ronnie is not restricted to the gold sector, although we do talk about gold a lot in this interview. So if you're unfamiliar with the gold sector, it's not a bad uh, conversation to get sort of caught up on the I don't know, the, the rookie, uh, I would say, introduction concepts into why you might want to have some gold in your portfolio. I often get labeled a gold bug because I keep some gold in my portfolio. I just think if you study history with any kind of a focus on currencies, I don't understand how you wouldn't want to have some in your in your portfolio, whether it's 3%, 5%, 10%, that's up to you. Uh, but I definitely sleep better at night knowing I have some gold and gold equities uh, in my ownership. So you may take that away from this interview. We also talked about Bitcoin. We talked about cash. We talked about geopolitical power balance. Super, super fine conversation. I love chatting to Ronnie. He's fascinating. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this. Here is Ronald Stofferly on The Jay Martin Show. Enjoy. Okay, guys, Jay Martin here, CEO of Cambridge House, and I'm joined right now by Ronald Stofferly, the author of In Gold We Trust and managing partner at Incrementum. Ronnie, how are you? Hi, Jay. Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, you're fresh back from uh, Beaver Creek Conference in Colorado, the Denver Gold Show in Colorado. I uh, wasn't able to make it. You know, where I'd love to start, therefore, Ronnie, is like, you must have sat down with, I don't know, 80 or so uh, precious metals companies, met with tons of investors, tons of delegates at the events. Talk to me about, about sentiment right now. What are you seeing? Uh, from investors in the space and, and company CEOs in the space? Uh, well, I, I tweeted out something. Uh, I basically retweeted um, one thing from, from the Denver Gold Show where there was one guy with a suitcase um, leaving basically an empty huge haul and that happened at at the Denver Gold Show. So so actually, you know, I would say attendance was was very, very slow. I think for the Precious Metals Summit, for example, there were like 500 people in person, while uh, two or three years three years ago, I think there were like 2,000 people attending. But mm. I really enjoyed it. And, and, and for me, I, I gave the first big keynote in person in almost two years, which, which was really a very, very good feeling. So... I, I did like 80 meetings with companies and uh, and I and I would say that most companies really did a did a great job over the last couple of uh, uh, of quarters. Um, we're seeing you know companies focusing on organic growth, uh, delivering free cash flow, raising dividends, buying back shares. I think political risk was was definitely a topic that we discussed uh, a lot. Mm. Some some cost pressure. For example, for various materials, but also for 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 drilling expenses, finding skilled labor, those were topics. Um, many companies that that I wasn't 
too excited about. They, they try to talk primarily about uh, ESG to, you know, to, to make up for the, mm. for the mistakes that, they, that they've made in their, in their primary business. But, but in general, I would say that out of those 80 meetings, I would say um, 65 were really, really surprisingly positive. That's pretty, okay, that's a, that's a good number. Yeah. You know, I, you, you kind of gave me a flashback when you talked about uh, it being maybe a bit quiet on the floor. However, those that were there, they meant business, you know? And it, it, the reason it gave me a flashback is because, as you know, you know, I run a, a series of investment conferences, handful in the precious metal sector. And from, call it like 2013 through to 2017, maybe, maybe even earlier, 2012 to 20, 2017, it was, it was pretty dire straits out there. And we'd be hosting events and very little attendance. And we'd always say, but if they're here in this market, they mean business, you know? Yeah. So given that I've heard that narrative before, and back then the macro forces weren't at play that were so supportive of a gold narrative. So it was almost like we were trying to talk ourselves up, like, look, it's pretty bleak out there but at least the people that are here are here to write checks. You know, if they're coming to a, a gold market in 2015, they mean business, but it's different today, right? Because there's all kinds of supporting macro trends for the gold narrative. Gold market hasn't really responded yet, but, but what do you make of that, Ronnie? You know, I, th I think when it comes to flows, first of all, we shouldn't forget that the pretty slow attendance was, was of course, not only due to um, the, the weak performance of the mining stocks, but also, of course, due to COVID. So, so yeah. many, many bankers had to cancel their trips very short notice. Many companies couldn't attend. So, so many investors also said, well, you know, it doesn't make any sense to go there to then do a virtual meeting. I can do that from home as well. So, so I think the, that's, that's definitely uh, an important factor, but, but uh, you know, I talked to many other fund managers and everybody basically said, well, we don't see any inflows. Most, most of the fund managers actually of the long only gold mining uh, uh, funds, they, they see some outflows. Um, generalists are not really um, joining the party or the party. I mean, uh, it's, it's not a party yet, but I didn't see too many generalist investors coming in, although valuations now really, really are appealing. And, and, and you know, you see um, single digit PEs, you see um, uh, dividend yields at three to four partly 5%. So it's, 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 it's really, um, I think from a, from a value investor point of view, I think there's, there's many, many gems to be found in this, in this industry at the moment. When it comes to gold, and of course, uh, I think we won't see um, gold mining stocks or silver mining stocks uh, really diverging from from a lackluster um, gold and silver price. So 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 without gold and silver going higher, I don't see. I cannot make a, a strong case for for a big bull market in the mining space. Obviously, however. Um, I think sentiment-wise, you know, I talked at the Precious Metal Summit, for example, um, to a die-hard gold bug, um, and 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 he asked me, "Well, do you think? What do you think is gold bad?" And I said, "I don't think so. Actually, I can really imagine that that gold will will go to new all-time highs over the next couple of months." And he said, "No way. That this is impossible. Gold is dead." So if you see this um this 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 pessimism 
already in the sector people that that are really into gold that that uh love their gold i think that that's that's quite telling mm. and you know now we're we're trading uh slightly below 1800 actually it doesn't take too much to go to new all-time highs but of course i mean i'm i'm not super excited about the uh, uh price developments uh over the last couple of months but we shouldn't get too greedy gold was up 26 percent uh last year it was up uh, i think 15 percent the year before year to date in us dollar terms we are down i think six or seven percent so it's mm -hmm. it's not that bad and again Companies uh, are, are delivering. They they are producing record record amounts of free cash flow. So so um, it makes me pretty pretty confident. I would say. Yeah, that's really interesting. The conversation you had with somebody that you described as a diehard gold bug who is telling you that sorry, Ronnie, gold is dead. And isn't that it's it's interesting? I had a similar conversation on uh, two days ago with a a peer of mine in in YouTube land. Right, he runs a channel like mine and I sort of appear and we share notes in our portfolios every couple of months. Uh, his core focus is cryptocurrencies. However, you know, he does invest in precious metals and some other stuff, but he was grilling me because he said, Jay, like if gold isn't performing in this market, right, with all these supporting factors, maybe the narrative is over. Maybe that story's over. And similar to you, I was like, this is great news. <laughs> That's the most bullish thing I've heard in the gold sector. And, and I, I take your story the same way. I mean, that's, it's, uh, it's difficult to be a contrarian investor. It's really, really hard, right? It, it takes yeah. a, a lot of, a lot of balls, like to step out when everyone else is running away. But uh, all of my mentors in the space, that's when they acted. And, you know, I want to, I want to pull up a Rick rule quote that I just love so much. He called me in, in March of 2020, when the sky was falling and said, he said, uh, Jay, it's times like these when the rest of the world is on the ground in the fetal position. That's when you have to kick the door down and storm the room, right? And I love it, right? But he's right. Yeah. And he's built a career off that advice. And I think, you know, the, the combination of extremely negative sentiment, no interest in the sector at all, and pretty positive fundamentals, that's, that's something that I like and, you know, my wife, for example, you know, she, she always buys the Christmas decoration, n not in November or in December. She buys it in January when it's 50% off. So <laughs> she's, right. she, she's a contra contrarian. And, and actually, in, in, in our funds, we're currently, uh, we're constantly buying. We've got some stink bits uh, in the market. So, so, so I like this current environment. And, you know, the big question is, of course, what is it going to take to make gold move again? I think the biggest opportunity costs, first of all, are in the on the equity side. Um, as long as, as U.S. equity markets just um, roar from one one all-time high to another, um, I think this this will give gold a hard time. However, over the last couple of days, we saw um, some volatility back again, and and actually, gold was one of the very very few assets that did really well. So so my thesis is always that that gold has this enormous amount of of intuition of 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 intelligence because you know the price of gold is influenced by so many different factors, so many different buyers and sellers from all over the globe. So I think there's quite a lot of wisdom actually, the wisdom of the crowds in the price of gold. So I think that perhaps it is discounting that tapering is happening 
it's gonna happen sooner or later and and i think the whole you know the 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 the, the whole discussion in markets when does it start i think this is it, it is kind of getting a little bit boring that's like the alcoholic um that tells us that well you know in five months from now i'll drink one glass of bourbon less per day mm-hmm. um and at some point you know I will only drink half a bottle uh, uh, a day anymore. I think, you know, that the price of gold really hates this whole um, uncertainty. I think once we've got a date regarding tapering, I think this should be a positive driver. Then, as I've said, um, opportunity costs uh, coming from the equity side, but then also cryptos. Um, as you know, Jay, we've got two funds that actually combine uh, uh Bitcoin and and gold, another one with cryptocurrencies and mining stocks, and and we actually love the volatility of the Bitcoin space. We 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 embrace the volatility by by writing options, but but it is obvious that when it comes to you know talking to journalists, they don't care about gold at the moment. They they want to sell their their stories, and yeah. obviously writing about Bitcoin and the whole DeFi space that's much more exciting for them. And and of course that's that's what people want to read about at the moment. Yeah, and that's the business of media, which I think is so important to recognize. As you said, they're in the business of selling stories, right? So they'll yep. publish headlines and all, whatever's going to generate the click because that picks the ad revenue. And that's the business model. And and losing sight of that can be disastrous if you think you're getting uh, unbiased information when really it's it's sensationalism is what sells, right? And so exactly, let's sell them what they want. In this case, it might be crypto. Um, Yeah, okay, I love all that. You know, I I definitely uh, subscribe to um, Nassim Taleb's thesis that nothing stress tests as effectively as time and you know i wouldn't call myself a gold bug by any stretch uh however i I hold a lot of gold equities and gold and that's just because i can't ignore the past right you look at the the, our past you know we're not talking about 13 years we're not talking about 100 years right you got to look deeper than that and uh i absolutely always i think if you study history and pay attention to currencies i don't understand how you would not have a position in the gold sector in some way shape or form but that is what it is okay so uh, I want to talk about uh, Denver a little bit because this was, as you said, it was the first keynote address that you gave in two years, yep. right? So yeah. what, what did you tell people, Ronnie? Well, it, it was called the monetary tipping point. So basically, I, I, I talked about the book, the brilliant book, um, The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. So, so it basically describes that, that magic moment when an idea, a trend or a social behavior um, crosses a, a certain threshold, tips, and then spreads like a wildfire and you know just as a single as a single sick person or or a bat can uh start an epidemic of the flu so too can a can a small but precisely targeted push cause cause a new fashion trend but we're also seeing those tipping points not only in sociology but also in physics in finance and in history and i think that when it comes to um tipping points in finance actually that that the covid crisis was was really the tipping point um that is changing this long standing dynamic from a disinflationary environment uh you know the great moderation to an inflationary uh environment 
Jay, obviously, you know, inflation is a topic again. And 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 I think, you know, in our last in Gold We Trust report, we, we wrote extensively about uh, uh inflation, why it's changing. Um so 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 I think people get that we are seeing very, very strong monetary stimulus. But I think what many people tend to forget at the moment is that actually fiscal stimulus is 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 becoming much, much more important. Than, than monetary stimulus. So, so I'm, I'm asking the question, what if central banks are becoming increasingly irrelevant? What if the days of monetary policy being the driving force are actually over? Because we have seen this shift from monetary to fiscal dominance. We know that the toolbox of central bankers is basically largely exhausted and if you look at what happened since the covid crisis it is absolutely clear that now we will use in 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 every crisis um, that's coming in the future um, that fiscal stimulus and direct measures will become much more important than in the past so I, I quote Andy Haldane, the, the outgoing chief economist of the Bank of England, and he wrote a, a very interesting article. And, and he basically said that the Bank of England, for the years after the Second World War, the Bank of England was effectively a think tank and that the government did set interest rates. And from my point of view, and, and Andy Haldane uh, confirms that, we could actually go back to that. So, so I think that the power of central banks is slipping away at the moment. And that was basically the, the core topic of, of my speech, where I made the case for why fiscal policy is becoming the driving force, what other things are becoming more and more important. This uh, opronomics, basically going direct, everyone gets a bailout, helicopter style policies, MMT style policies, credit guarantees by the government, universal basic income, stuff like that. And of course, um, this wage price spiral that, that is really starting to spin at the moment. So those were basically the topics that I, that I talked about. That's, that's fascinating. So talk to me a little bit more about, about central banks losing control. I want to understand this better, Ronnie, from the standpoint of, of who gains the influence as the central banks lose it. Well, well, I mean, I, I think that um, the traditional toolbox of a central banker, um, you know, what did they do prior to prior to the great financial crisis? Of course, um, lowering and increasing uh, interest rates. So that's that's basically uh, done. I think the um, the experiments going into negative territory they they didn't work so well. I don't think that the Federal Reserve will introduce negative rates. We are basically, and that was the title of our last book. We are in the zero interest rate trap. Then, of course, unconventional policies like quantitative easing. They are now conventional policies, but we see that. We're um, experiencing this enormous decline uh, of the marginal utility of quantitative easing. So okay. now we're seeing uh, 120 billion a month doesn't really move the needle. So, so of course, 
uh, at some point, I think the Federal Reserve will start buying uh, uh, equities. At some point, I think we will see some sort of a uh, yield curve control, which would basically be unlimited quantitative easing. But but I think that um, the market has now really, really seen that um, the emperor has no clothes and that at some point, you know, central bankers, they don't run the show anymore. And on the other hand, I think that politicians really, you know, they they enjoy the fact that that they can intervene and rescue the economies. And and we're seeing that the best times of the frugal Swabian housewife are basically a thing of the past. So austerity is out all over the world. And and I don't think that we will go back to to the regime that we saw for the COVID crisis. And, you know, now Mm. normally I think the, the, the the thing is that, of course, the debt mountains already before the COVID crisis were, were pretty high. And we know that now the sensitivity to rising interest rates is higher than ever. So it is basically impossible for central banks to raise interest rates. I mean, we all know that. But I think now it's really time to focus much, much more on fiscal policies. And I mentioned uh, one example, uh, my, my dear friend Russell Napier actually highlighted that. It is the rise of government credit guarantees. And, you know, Russell Napier is, is, is so important for me as, as some sort of a mentor because Russell has been a deflationist for decades, but now he predicts uh, sustained, uh, sustained inflation. So he gave the example of the UK chancellor introducing government guarantees on mortgages up to £600,000, which was announced in the March 2021 budget. So these schemes offer direct incentives for banks to increase lending. And and actually, the risks associated with with defaults are passed on to to the society. So if there, there are um, uh, credit guarantees by the government, and I think we're, we're seeing this trend all over the globe, this is really a fundamental change in the way that money is created. So so there's quite a lot going on, and, and therefore, you know, people shouldn't just focus on, on monetary growth, we should focus more on fiscal measures, we should focus more on those credit guarantees. I think there's really quite a lot happening. And, you know, let's face it, Jay, um, after the great financial crisis, um, central bankers um, um, basically told us for more than 10 years, inflation rates are too low. Inflation rates are too low. We have to do more to get inflation rates up. Now they are uh, up significantly. Now they keep telling us, well, it's transitory. It will come back. They, They introduced average inflation targeting basically as an excuse for inflation rates to overshoot. Mm-hmm. So it is happening, but still the majority of investors, especially institutional players, they still believe that it's transitory. At some point, I think they will wake up. And, you know, we crunched the numbers in our last in Gold We Trust report and, and analyzed what actually has the highest inflation beta. And it's, it's pretty simple. It's commodities and it's gold. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note, if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways, lessons learned and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. 
Now back to the conversation. Tell me if you think I'm wrong here, Ronnie. A lot of the uh, disagreement about the inflation thesis comes down to definitions, timelines, uh, and semantics, to be honest. Like, you know, I sit down with a lot of deflationists because I want to understand both sides of any argument and, um, and they're compelling on either side, you know, um, to the tune of, well, any, any industry that is eventually, um, disrupted by technology becomes deflationary, right? We can look at any technology-based service. I mean, media is the obvious example, uh, music and movies, but there's plenty more to be honest. And, and things like 3d composite printing are going to disrupt a lot of, uh, sectors in the same way. And that stuff's not far away anymore. So sector by sector, these things will fall to deflationary pressures from technology disruption. Think about that. Tell me if you think I'm right or wrong and, and so forth. And then I think where the other place I see the discrepancy is in the timeline, right? So it's like transitory. What does transitory mean? Does that mean six months? Does that mean three years? Right. And we couldn't, we, if you don't agree on that, then you could debate all day long, whether or not it is transitory. What, what do you think? Well, you know, Talking about deflation, obviously, if, if, if there would be some sort of a laissez-faire approach, so basically nobody would intervene, um, the natural state of our system is deflationary. Okay. Um, absolutely crystal clear, and there are still deflationary forces at work. But my view is that the inflationary forces are now stronger than the deflationary forces. So if there wouldn't be massive fiscal stimulus, if there wouldn't be massive monetary stimulus, then I think it would absolutely be highly deflationary. Mm. And every credit collapse and what we're seeing in China now, those are deflationary trends that we're seeing. However, in our monetary system, we cannot allow any deflation. When you're highly in debt, deflation is the very, very last thing that you want to see yeah so so i think it, it is really you have to to understand the system and then you 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 start realizing why actually politicians and central bankers are so scared of deflation uh, and the higher you are indebted um the higher your fear regarding deflation so i think it is is absolutely bogus that you know the mainstream argument um we shouldn't go to deflation because you know then um, people just stop consuming i mean Mm. i don't know it doesn't work too well in the technology space where everything is getting cheaper and and the 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 quality uh, of products is getting better people still buy their iphones their tv sets whatever so my reply was in our monetary system deflation cannot be accepted and the second thing you know regarding the timeline yes first of all uh inflation is a process secondly there are large time lags involved and thirdly i think one of the main reasons why um why inflation isn't a bigger concern yet is the sharp fall in the velocity of money Mm. um And if you have a look at the long-term chart of the velocity of money, in 1933 and in 46, velocity was at similarly low levels. And in both cases, the U.S. had to um, resort to radical measures. You know, in 34, we all know it it, it devalued the U.S. dollar versus gold by almost 70%. And in the period from 46 till uh, 51, they basically kept interest rates uh, at a a low level. Basically, yield curve control was implemented. Now we are at similarly low levels. And at some point, I think that be the yield curve control, um, be it um, 
perhaps even, um, let's say, a realignment of our monetary system. Stuff like that will happen. And, and, and I think over the last couple of quarters, those scenarios clearly became more realistic again. And, you know, I, I just finished reading the book Three Days at Camp David. It's a fantastic book. Uh, um, it is how a secret meeting in 1971 transformed the global economy. So, so basically, you know, those fine gentlemen meeting up at Camp David, Richard Nixon, Arthur Burns, uh, Paul Volcker, uh, Kissinger, and so on. Mm. And it perfectly describes what, what happened prior to the 15th of August, 1971. And, and I think, you know, for everybody interested in that space, it's, it's a great read. Uh, and it also shows you the importance uh, of gold and, and, and what a big decision it was to temporarily stop the convertibility uh, of the US dollar into gold. So, mm. so I think at some point we will see a Camp David event. Um, I think then gold will play a major role. And, and as um, the blogger Fofoa said, I think one, one revaluation of gold in a lifetime is clearly enough. Uh, and that's my, my longer term scenario. And as I've said, I think we, we got much closer to, to, to those uh, things um, due to the events uh, that we saw over the last couple of quarters. Interesting. Okay. Three days at Camp David. Thank you for that share. Now, another trend I'm curious about is, are you seeing a shift you know, we've been on this globalization uh, trajectory for my entire life anyways. And do you feel like that is shifting now to uh, us reversing to some sort of a deglobalization path? And if so, does that add inflationary pressure because we're not getting cost efficiencies in terms of labor and, and products and manufacturing, et cetera? Well, obviously, I think we, we, we are seeing that that geopolitical tensions are, are rising, you know, on, of course, with the US and its allies on the one hand and China and Russia on the other. Of course, these tensions could reduce the volume of, of international trade. They could result in less international division of labor, in, in lower economic uh, efficiency and also in rising consumer prices. But I think that's that's also a big process. I, I, I showed a picture from the last um, summit between China and, uh, and the US, and it took place in Alaska. And I think that's, that's also quite a symbolic character. So the atmosphere was extremely chilly, almost hostile. We saw at the G7 meeting afterwards that China now is really, really the big enemy. We saw, of course, um, the recent upheaval in, in, in Afghanistan and, 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 you know, the whole region is kind of a powder keg. And we also saw um, right afterwards that China basically told the whole Asian world, well, you know, it seems that, that the U.S. doesn't have your back anymore and, and um, that, that we are here from you. So, so those are definitely interesting developments, Jay. But we're also seeing, I think, when it comes back to the inflationary trends in the real economy, we're seeing in many parts of Asia and also obviously in Australia, we're seeing um, zero COVID policy. We, we, we saw partial close downs in, in many of the most important ports in Asia, especially in China due to some, some, some smaller COVID-19 outbreaks. We saw that shipping rates are going through the roof. We see, and we've we've got uh, one one great client. He he's the owner of a shipping company, and he told us, well, 
it's going to take at least 18 months to mm. go back to normal. Mm. So, so I think it's, it's, it's really a combination of many, many different factors that are now coming together. And I think it, 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 it's really, it will really be, be hard to, to contain um, the, the inf inflation genie now that it's really out of the bottle. So, mm. so I think, you know, just uh, as anecdotal evidence, you know, just, just walking around in the U.S., uh, I saw we are hiring science everywhere. I talked to many business owners. They said, well, it's, it's really hard to get, uh, to get people, good people. We are paying decent salaries, much, much higher than, than pre-COVID. Uh, in Colorado, it seemed that everybody uh, in the service industry is completely stoned, um, yeah. which isn't too much fun when you're ordering something and only 50% <laughs> actually uh, arrive at your table. So, <laughs> so, so, so I think it's, it, it's really um, this wage price spiral really starts spinning now and it's, mm. it's going to be hard to contain that. Okay. Okay. So following that, uh, you talked a lot about geopolitical, a little bit about geopolitical power balance and a common debate on my channel over the last six months. I guess the question has been, okay, so the United States dominated the 20th century, who will dominate the 21st? And most people land on uh, either the United States empire is still in its adolescence and it's going through some growing pains. But in fact, this is early days. The second answer is typically no power is shifting to the east do you see one or the other more probable did you hear more sentiment leaning one or the other direction in denver uh last week or does either narrative resonate more with you ronnie well jay i have to say i don't have a a very strong educated view on that yeah I, sure. I i really really have to say but just from 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 my feeling and from from conversations uh as we also published uh, the in gold we trust report in china every time i'm in china every time i'm in in singapore i'm i'm really excited about what's going on and and how quickly um this part of the world is developing and 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 in china for example they they aren't copycats they are now really when it comes to technology i think they're they're really doing a great job i think their education system is is fantastic i think their their students uh they've got students in the more important um how do you say subjects um okay. I, I don't think that gender studies will really uh, be a in gender studies and whatever will really mm. um make the the economy um uh, much better right <laughs> yeah I, I so 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 i think you know talking to chinese people to to chinese businessmen it is really astonishing how how motivated they are how hard working they are so from my point of view, it, it, it is also a, a long process. I don't think that there's going to be one point in time when China is now ruling the world. But, you know, we're, we're seeing that China is really picking up um, in all different parts uh, when it comes to the economy, uh, uh, obviously, when it comes to technology, military, whatever. Um, I think both systems have got their issues, their flaws. Um, but I think the U.S. is now kind of realizing that uh, there's strong competition coming up. 
And at some point, I don't know uh, if we study history, um, that that might become um, a, a real concern. I hope that we won't see any um, any military escalations. If you understand China, I think they they weren't really uh, aggressors um, invading other countries. But but for example, you know Taiwan. If you talk to a, to a, to mainland Chinese. Taiwan is a part of China, and and there is no no question about that. Many of my Chinese contacts tell me, well, um, at some point it's gonna happen, perhaps um, after the the the, uh, the Winter Olympics next year. I don't know um, how will the U.S. react then um, if it's really shifting to a to a policy that is that is focusing on the U.S. and doesn't play you know world police anymore. It's going to be interesting to watch, but I think, you know, it's it's not black and white. Uh, it is um, much more nuanced and therefore it's 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 very interesting to 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 follow, obviously. OK, so follow up question on China, then Evergrande has been dominating headlines if for context. Today is September 22nd. So whenever you're viewing this, is this uh, is this early days? Is this uh, uh, an early trigger point of some? larger events that are going to carry on and this will become the systemic event that some fear it might be or is this bit of hype bit of fear most of the debt holders are in china it's not as systemic as people think and you know in two weeks we'll probably have moved on what do you think ronnie well, the thing is, you know, many people say it's a it's a Lehman moment. Uh, it is not because it's a it's a government controlled demolition. Uh, that doesn't make it any better. But I think you know if if you have a look at what what happened um, uh, in China recently? You know, we 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 saw that um, China has really shown willingness to crack down on selected uh, industries, like you know the Didi, this rideshare company. Uh, we saw it with tech companies like Tencent and Alibaba. We saw it with the online education and the video gaming sector. So perhaps Evergrande will be. The, the the poster child of deleveraging and reforming the real estate sector. That, that's the plan. On the other hand, obviously, um, it is a deflationary uh, driver. I think that the Bank of China will have to return to a much more dovish stance to contain any collateral damage. And, and the problem is, of course, we all don't know what, what's going to happen to other real estate developers. We don't know um, how negatively affected the Chinese uh, economic activity will be. We, we, we have seen, obviously, that the, the, the China's uh, credit impulse has slowed recently to the lowest level since February. Uh, we saw that uh, the manufacturing PMI and also the non-manufacturing PMI both fell into contraction already in August. And I think we're just seeing that 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 liquidity um, conditions at the margin have clearly turned uh, less favorable, and the big question obviously is how much contagion uh, we will see. Um, if there's going to be a dominant dominant effect to other real estate developers in China, and then of course uh, to the highly levered Chinese banking system. From my point of view, you know, it's it's also some sort of a uh, of an excuse for market participants for you know 
taking chips off the table, reducing beta and, and, and de-risking their portfolio. We all know that, you know, we just went from one all-time high to another. We all knew that, that uh, uh, it's, uh, it's already um, at quite lofty valu valuation. So, so from my point of view, over the next couple of weeks, we will see more volatility. I think we will see much more downside risk but it's not only China, it's also economic numbers coming out in the in the US. We're seeing uh, GDP now, for example, by the Atlanta Fed basically coming in 50% lower than initially expected. Uh, Morgan Stanley has slashed its forecast. So, so you know, this, this environment where everything is priced to perfection now, this, this seems to be kind of over for now, at least. Okay, so then... Final, where I'd love to wrap up here, where I always love to wrap up is where should I be putting my money, Ronnie? That's the purpose of this whole channel. But my question for you isn't that. My question for you is uh, what's the most valuable asset right now to be holding? And you can say cash. Cash is is often my favorite uh, to have the dry powder and the ability and confidence to act. But, but uh, where in your portfolio do you feel like you have the most upside potential or the most opportunity right now? Well, of course, it, it depends on the time frame. Um, but I think at the moment, it, it re I, I like the technical setup in in gold. I think it's 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 really stabilizing here. And I always said it's it's gold that moves first, and then the rest of the commodity complex moving. And and I thought, and I think we we really saw it in 2020. We we saw it in 2008, 2009 when gold made made the bottom first and actually started rallying while the rest of the um, uh, inflation sensitives and the commodity complex only um, followed a couple of weeks later. So gold, obviously, but still mining stocks, we talked about them, um, seeing tremendous, tremendous value in this um, space, in the large caps, also in the royalty space, but especially in the developer space. I like Bitcoin, although it's a, it's a very, very controversial topic from, from my point of view. Gold and Bitcoin, they, they aren't enemies. I think it, it fits together in a, in a portfolio, you know, with gold having a track record of more than 5,000 uh, uh, years, um, preserving purchasing power and Bitcoin obviously significantly less, therefore higher volatility, but therefore also significantly higher um, uh, risk reward. Uh, we like it. We like the combination. We like the volatility. We, we, we are using it. And, and then I think in, we, we're seeing tremendous value also in the space of, of energy. Um, producers. Um, my friend Kevin Muir, he, he, he put out a great piece where he basically uh, compared uh, energy producers to, to tobacco stocks, which were fantastic performers because they were basically kicked out from institutional uh, portfolios uh, in the 90s. They are paying out very, very high um, uh, dividends. If you have a look at, for example, Philip Morris or now Altria, um, they massively outperformed the S&P. And I think now at the moment with um, uh, oil prices at that level and from my point of view going higher, I think um, energy companies are a steal. And I think that's for a longer term uh, investor. I think it's that's that's really um, stocks that you can just, you know, buy and hold over the next couple of years. Yeah, I love that. I I'm inclined to agree with you on the energy front, acknowledging that it's a sector I know very little about. So one, I need to study more 
because I don't feel like I have the conviction to act on any ideas just yet. But uh, from from a high level standpoint, I'm excited by what I see. And uh, interesting to hear you say uh, Bitcoin is still controversial, you know, from your standpoint. And, and I understand why. And uh, I also I've always appreciated you because you hold both in your funds, right? And you don't get caught up in what I honestly want to call like kind of fanboy uh, issues, right? Like if you become a fan of an asset, you might get yourself in trouble, right? It's like a recipe to get blindsided. If you love gold, if you love Bitcoin, if you love equities, like never fall in love with the asset, right? Then you, you join the team. It becomes us versus them arguments. And it's illogical, right? Because I mean, I get it, and this, you can draw parallels, obviously, but I've always felt that comparing gold to Bitcoin is kind of like comparing real estate to Facebook stock. Like, they're just different, right? And they each serve their own purpose. And yes, you can draw parallels. Doesn't mean you have to, though, right? And one doesn't uh, dismiss the other. My thoughts, anyways. What do you think? Well, well yeah, I, I compared it to, you know, a large and, and, and safe Volvo SUV and uh, a motorcycle, a Ducati Panigale. You know, okay. you can go from A to B with both. Um, of course, it's it's much, much more comfortable and safer in, in a large SUV for the family. And it's perhaps more fun uh, on a motorcycle and you're faster um, wherever you want to go to. But as soon as it starts raining and we're seeing now, you know, Bitcoin seems to be a risk on uh, assets as for now, at least, yeah. This volatility is kicking in, but but I agree, you know, I'm, I'm, for me, Bitcoin isn't a religion, gold isn't a religion. I think it's just two things that cannot be inflated at will, where we see um, relative scarcity compared to fiat money. I think both should have a place in your portfolio. But obviously, as, as Bitcoin is still so much more volatile, um, if it's too volatile for you, then just take a lower percentage in your portfolio. Yeah, that, that's that's basically the, the right approach. And, and if you can't sleep because of the volatility, then perhaps it isn't for you. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, what, what really fascinates me, Jay, is the, the dynamic in the whole space uh, I'm seeing Lots of brilliant minds, uh, hardworking, smart people that really want to to change something for the better. Of course, they also want to make money. But I think I'm 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 sometimes you know attending those those conferences and events. I'm really astonished uh, about the the quality of people attending. And and I have to say, when you go to a traditional fun, financial banking whatever conference um it's sometimes the opposite where where people are only talking about the the threats and the problems and you know regulation and higher taxes and whatever but nobody's talking about opportunities and mm -hmm. and, and possibilities and you know uh new business models new ideas and stuff like that so so for me it's very refreshing also you know i'm not that old yet but it's it's just cool to talk to 25 year old kids and, and perhaps they are learning from the conversation, but I'm also learning quite a lot talking to them about the technology. I love that. I love that. Okay. We'll, we'll wrap it up there. I'm going to just throw it out there one more time. We're hosting the Vancouver resource investment conference on January 16th and 17th and fingers crossed Ronnie is going to be there. Uh, travel restrictions pending, but it's going to be yeah. awesome. It's going to be super yeah. fun. I'd love to have you there, man. Mr. Trudeau has to sign probably my national interest <laughs> <Yeah>. exemption. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Hilarious. But I'll, I'll try my best. I, I really look forward to this.
Guys, thanks sounds good, buddy. Th thanks again for coming on. It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Jay. All the best and take care. Bye-bye. All right. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.